Good morning. Um, here's a quote that I came across at college when we were doing a module on uh, conflict transformation in churches. And the quote says, Churches are more vulnerable to conflict than any other group, community, or organization in the world. Which is an interesting statement from this research student. I wonder if it's true. Uh, and why, why would that be? Well, we're in this series, we're coming to the end of our series now, on what it means to be called as church. We've been uh, listening over the last couple of months on uh, topics called to uh, give, called to grow, called to pray, called to be one. And today, we're ending on called to reconcile. What does it mean to be a church that does reconciliation well? So... This kind of, uh, what I'm doing today is a little bit of a part two of a, of a talk I did in January on called to be one. And then I said, um, I talked about different denominations. I said, how as a church we are to regard one another as family, as brothers and sisters. And if that seems odd, I suggested brothers and sisters in law. If we look, look at each other as our in-laws, that might be an easier way to, to, to think of that fami familial, that family relationship. And I said that in church, uh, we are to be in unity. That doesn't mean agreeing on everything. It, it, in a family, we don't agree on everything, but we have something more important in common. And similarly in church, we have something more important than our day-to-day. Um, we are actually very accustomed to disagreements, aren't we? We're used to disagreeing in our marriages, in our, with our parents, with our children, with our colleagues, with our friends. It's not unusual for us to be in disagreement. In fact, if I was to ask you if anybody uh, has had a disagreement in the last couple of weeks, I would expect everybody, honestly, to put their hand up. It's, it's, it's part of life. Sadly, though, I know, and maybe you know, of people particularly in families who haven't spoken in years because of one conversation, something that happened a long time ago. And that can happen in churches. And one place that we often find conflict and where it can be particularly hurtful is right here in churches. So here's the quote, that churches are more prone to conflict, more vulnerable to conflict than any other group, community or organization. So why might that be? Let's just suggest that there's some truth in that statement. Why might that be? I suggest two reasons why churches are particularly vulnerable to conflict. The first one is we have high ownership of our church. And this is a good thing. We, we own what we do here. Our identity, part of our identity of who we are is invested here. Not just, I don't mean in the building, I mean in what, what we do possibly the building, but what we do, what, what we give towards, what we do day to day, the ministries that we're involved in during the week, that's part of who we are. Some of you have been here for decades, and it's very much part of you are, but even if you haven't, you may have got involved in the work in the ministry of this church, and it's part of you. So our, our, we have high ownership, and secondly, we have high expectation of each other, I think. After all, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, so we tend to think, shouldn't, shouldn't you be behaving better towards me than the chap at work or the neighbor? That's okay, but in church, we're supposed to behave better. We have high ownership and high expectation. Things that we might put up with from colleagues or neighbors, we tend to think shouldn't happen in church. In fact, I would say very much so in my experience, conflicts at work are usually much easier to deal with than conflicts at church. Much easier. 
And I think, in my experience, there's two reasons why that is. The first one is that work, we have established hierarchies, very well established. So if people who worked for me said, well, we want to do this, and we think this is a great project, and I don't think so, I say, well, that's great, but actually we're doing this. They'll say, okay. And similarly, if the CEO was to say to me, what you've written is okay, but I don't like it for this reason and this reason. I've heard what you have to say, but Chris, you have to change it. I change it. And, that, and there's a hierarchy. And also, we need to be paid, don't we? At the end of the day, we want to be paid. So, so, so for, for all, normally in church, we're doing things voluntarily. So uh, today, just want to whiz through these three headlines, these three topics. In church, particularly, what do we fall out about? What do we tend to argue about and disagree about? Secondly, what do we tend to do about it? And thirdly, what should we do about it? What should we be doing? So what things do we argue about in church? Here's a few, uh, uh, not topics, but just uh, quotes. Actually, all things that I've heard in the past. Why haven't the leaders sorted this? That's what they're there for. That group have left our hall in a mess again. And my mother left those for the church who said they could be thrown out. The music group never listened to me. They completely ignored my suggestions, etc., etc. And in fact... Um, I, I, I would say, and I've seen this elsewhere as well, that there are four topics most often that we fall out over in church. There are some others as well, but we tend not to argue. We tend not to fall out about the sermons. We tend not to fall out about the crash. We tend not to fall out about the house groups. But we do fall out about the music, the leaders, the building, and the youth work. Those are things that we often fall out about. Now, um, let me just whiz through those. I'm not going to use uh, very up-to-date examples, but for, for example, music. Um, one of the churches I was at, um, de- a couple of decades before, they had this uh, Toronto blessing, which came from the uh, airport's church at Toronto, which was a mix of uh, spirit and uh, music and different types of worship, and it split the church, that church into not 10 miles from me. It split that church into where uh, a lot of people, younger people, said, Well, we, d- we just don't agree with the way you're still doing worship. We need to change. And because you won't change, we will leave. And they left. It, it wasn't a blessing for them. Uh, leadership. So, things that I've, I've been a leader in four churches up to now. And and quite commonly, I've heard two statements. The first one is, the leaders don't consult with us. They don't ask our opinion. Where's the democracy? Why aren't you talking to us about these things? And then the second statement I've heard, very clearly, it's ringing in my head, is, you're the leaders. Why don't you just get on with it? Tell us what to do, and we will follow you. Stop coming back with discussion after discussion after discussion. Just do it. You're supposed to be a leader. And I've heard both of those. And sometimes the leaders do need help, and we do need your suggestions, and even your corrections, but there's a way to do that, isn't there? The buildings. Buildings have often caused problems. I used to be in an Anglican church, and there was a listed building, and and a a group of of the community, uh, in the community, set up their own organization called the Victorian Society to oppose anything that we would do in the building. And they weren't even coming to the church. In this church, we've had a building project. We're still, we haven't quite finished, and that's been difficult as well. We've had difficulties along the way. We're nearly there now. But one thing that we try to do is to involve stakeholders. 
So when we do the Sunday school room upstairs, if you're the stakeholder, we ask you. If, if we're doing the basement, if you're involved in youth, we ask you. If, you're, if we're doing the prayer room or the office or the AV station, if that's your, if that's your area, we have talked to all those people. It makes it about three times longer, but it's the right thing to do. And then youth and young people. So for, uh, in the 90s, for 12 years... I, I led the youth work along with Alison and, a, and another chap called Garfield. We were in a Church of England church in Moss Side. And the three of us led the youth work. There was no rota. Or we just did all of it, three groups. And uh, we had full-time jobs as well. But one thing that I did notice is you, you, as youth leaders, you give a lot. You give an awful lot Emot- emotionally from a time perspective. And uh, I remember once, the first time this happened, being invited out to, with, to, to a, a, a meal in the evening with two families of youth. And I thought, we thought, this is really nice. They're, they probably want to say thank you for helping our kids. But actually, it was an ambush. <laughs> it was all about, why aren't you doing this? Do you not know that this group of kids don't get on with that group of kids? Why don't you do more? Why don't you do it like this? And why don't you do that? And we really felt God's out. Thank goodness me, I'm giving kind of half my life to this group. And this is what we're getting back. But what I had to learn, there wasn't an excuse for that. But what I did learn is that when it comes to people's kids, uh, a kind of primordial instinct kicks in. And all rationality goes out the window. Even love goes out the window. Because this kind of primordial defense mechanism kicks in when you're talking to people about their kids. It doesn't matter, you know, about what's sensible or, or biblical these are my kids. <laughs> I don't care what else you do. And, and, and uh, we had kids after that, and we felt the same primordial instincts to protect. Youth is another key flashpoint in churches where there can be major disagreements. And to some people outside the church, they, these may seem minor. You're only arguing about what's going on the wall or about a song. What's the problem? But when we couple that topic with high ownership and high expectation, it can really grow out of proportion. <clears throat> so what, that's the sort of things that we tend to fall out about. Those are the top four, I believe. What do we tend to do in these situations in church? What do we do when we fall out, typically? Well, it's hard to stop th- thinking about it, isn't it? You feel angry, you feel hurt, your self-esteem may be damaged. And uh, we find it hard to communicate. I think there are three wrong ways that we uh, respond to conflict in church. Three things that we tend to do. The first one is, often we will withdraw completely. We'll just get out of that situation and not go there. So we won't go to the group where that person is. We may even withdraw from church. Haven't really discussed it with anyone. We're just not going anymore because we didn't like something. That's one thing that we tend to do. The second thing we tend to do, rather than talking to the person or the group that we have the issue with, we talk to everybody else. We start canvassing other people and lobbying and say, well, have you seen what they've done over there? And isn't that, that ridiculous decision? And uh, they even will try and get a, a, a kind of a group. Um, then it'll come back as lots of, lots of people think this. Lots of us are saying this. Uh, and we've talked about this before. And we, when anyone comes to us and says, you know, lots of people are saying this, we are always deeply suspicious and that's the right, right response. And we want to know who's saying that. What's the reason, please? Because they may, be, they, they may just have offered you a shoulder to cry on. That doesn't mean they agree with you. 
So we withdraw, we canvass other people, and then the third thing we tend to do, which isn't right, not as common, but we can angrily confront. We can lose it and angrily confront. Sometimes people will angrily rise up. To not do those three things takes self-discipline. It's not easy. But take heart. Take heart because the Bible, there, there, there is a, the Bible is all about conflict. There is loads of conflict in the Bible. In fact, I would say, if you took the conflicts out of the Bible, you'd end up with a very thin and actually uninteresting book. If you took the conflicts out of the Bible. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not just talking about the... Uh, battles and rebellions and wars in the Old Testament. That's obvious, isn't it? But even in the New Testament, look at some of the conflicts. Disagreements over how food is distributed. Sarah read that passage out from Acts 6 two weeks ago. Distribution of food, a major conflict. That was the first conflict in the early church. Arguments about new believers. How, shouldn't new believers be circumcised like us? Shouldn't, why are they eating food offered to idols? The church had to call a conference in Acts chapter 15 to deal with that conflict. Paul appealing to women in Philippians chapter 4, I appeal to you, Eodia and Syntyche, work out your differences, please, because the church needs you, but not at loggerheads with each other. Two leading women in the church were asked, called out by name. And Paul himself falls out, falls out with Barnabas, um, I've got the wrong verse there. But Paul himself was out with Barnabas over, over Mark, the immature Mark. Barnabas wants to take him, uh, who later writes the gospel, on their mission. And Paul says, no, he let us down before. We're not having him. And uh, Acts says they have a sharp disagreement, and they go their separate ways, Paul and Barnabas. Paul falls out with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Peter's been very inconsistent with these new Gentile believers. He'll eat with them and share food with them, but when uh, the Jews come, he, he eats separately from them. And Paul says, that's not right, Peter. That's hypocritical. And he gives him a right shouting at, Galatians chapter 2. And even Jesus did not deny conflict, did he? Most often, Jesus was the cause of conflict. He caused conflict. He even said, don't think I've just come to bring peace. I've come with a sword. There will be conflicts. In fact, isn't our gospel all about, in the end, conflict and reconciliation? That's what the good news is, that we are inherently in conflict with our maker. And this is a message of how conflict is reconciled. So the Bible actually is a book stuffed with conflict and reconciliation. That's what it's all about, actually. So, given that the Bible has so many conflicts in it, does it give us practical advice of what to do when we're in church in a conflict, specifically in church? Yes, it does. We're going to look at two very brief passages, both very practical. And the first one, which we'll look at, which says what to do if we've fallen out with a brother or sister in church. And it will say, don't avoid the situation, don't let it fester, but take the initiative you take the initiative. If you feel conflict, you take the initiative. And there's a promise and there's a warning in this passage as well. So let's see, let's just read through this passage in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, not all manuscripts have against you, but that's the one I'm using. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. 
If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And here's a warning. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And here's a promise. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you, that if, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And then Jesus goes on, still talking about conflict, to give a parable. We won't read the whole parable. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. So let's just step through that passage a little bit. First of all, Jesus says, and most importantly, if you feel conflict with somebody, with a brother or sister in church, go to them, take the initiative, go to them, see if they will listen. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't go to other people and start talking to them about it. Go to them. Don't retreat into an angry silence. Don't confront them in a spirit of anger. Don't shoot from the hip. And when you go to them, always assume that they know something that you don't. Just as you will know things that they don't. They know something that you don't. So go to them in the right spirit, saying, for example, could you help me understand this, this decision? Could you help me understand? Or even, I was a bit disappointed or upset by what you said at the group, at the church meeting. Could you help me understand that? Because I don't understand it. There will be something to learn, something that we don't know. Assume you don't know something. Be curious and listen. What we're doing here is we're shifting the focus from a contest to be won to a problem to be solved. So go to them. Then Jesus says, only if this fails do we then involve others in a measured way with one or two and with the church. In fact, Jesus actually says, if all fails, treat them as a tax collector, which sounds harsh, doesn't it? But how did Jesus treat tax collectors? He didn't shun them. He didn't withdraw from them. He didn't confront them angrily. Actually, he met them. He spent time with them. He, he worked with them. He brought them closer to the kingdom. He showed them hospitality. He showed them unconditional love. So even in that situation where a conflict really isn't resolvable, we're still called to show them unconditional love. But I would say that the very first line there, in 90% of cases, that's enough. If you feel in conflict with someone, go to them. Could you help me understand this? Because I, I, I don't understand this. What's happened in this situation? In 90% of cases, probably 99, that's enough to resolve the situation. So there's a promise and a warning here. The warning, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, we'll talk about in the house groups, okay? because there's more to that. But the promise is written here. God promises to be present in an exceptional way when two or three gather. Um, it's in there in verse 19. He says, when two or three of you agree in my name, I will grant it. When two uh, gather in my name, I am present. 
That's it, what this passage is all about, conflict. And I know we use that verse, when two or three are gathered there, we use that to comfort ourselves when there's only two of us at the prayer meeting, right? Don't worry, when God has said, well, that's fine. That is true as well. God is always present at the prayer meeting, even if there's only one of you. But this verse is, in, is actually written into a passage about conflict. And what Jesus is saying is, if you do this, go to them, I will be with you. Here's a promise. I will be with you in a special way. If you meet to resolve conflict between you as brothers and sisters, I am with you in a very specific and special way. Just one last example, uh, anecdote. So just on this go to them. So like 20 years ago, um, I was the leader at another church. And uh, we, it was just a time when fair trade tea and coffee, coffee had stopped being disgusting it was actually okay, so it was actually all right. It wasn't a big sacrifice to have fair trade coffee. So <clears throat> I said, uh, as, you know, oh, why haven't we got fair trade tea and coffee in the church? It's a, it's a no-brainer. You know, why haven't we got any? I'll just go out to Sainsbury's and buy loads of tea and coffee and put it in the, ch- put it in the kitchen. Problem solved. And then a lady rang me up that evening who was in the conversation, a uh, very wise lady, and she said, Chris... You have to remember, and I'm going to make the names up, Peter and Sue have been providing tea and coffee for this church for decades. They haven't asked for anything back. That is their ministry. That is what they do. Actually, that is part of who they are. Part of their identity. This is what, and for you to just come in and say, you're using this now. <laughs> just, just, just jumping in there with both feet. And she said, it, they'll probably leave the church if you do that. <clears throat> And she said, why don't you have a chat with Sue? And um, she will immediately say, I don't know where to get fair trade coffee from because that's what she says. So I went to Sue and I said, you know, it's great that you're doing the tea and coffee. What, do, you, do you think we should now go on to fair trade coffee? And Sue immediately said, I don't know where to get that from. So I said, well, perhaps I could help you. Perhaps we could look for some and, and work this out. And we did it. The, you know, <clears throat> everything happened well. There was no conflict. Uh, we changed over to fair trade tea and coffee. But if I'd gone in with just, you know, I'm going to fix this, uh, that would have caused a conflict. And, and um, it's easy for us to... It would have been easy for me to say, it's only tea and coffee. What's the problem? But for that elderly couple, that was, they were doing that for Jesus, for God. <clears throat> we need to develop... Soft hearts and thick skins. <clears throat> Soft hearts where we understand other people's identity, what it means to other people. And thick skins where we are not easy to offend. Don't be too easy to offend. I've got a couple more things to say just to finish off. Um, but I'm going to come back in a few minutes. And in the meantime, we're going to sing again. And as the bushfire emergency unfolds in Perth's northeast, attention has now turned to what caused the blaze. You're about to see exclusive pictures of the moment one of the fires sparked. Sudden and unpredictable. These CCTV pictures show the moment an horizon freight train passes through Hearn Hill yesterday. It's 11.56. Three minutes later, dry scrub next to the track is on fire. It would have started probably from around here somewhere and then just worked its way that way and also that way and the 
the easterly winds would have just helped the fan right up here. The blaze heading straight towards the Daniele family home that Di and Enzo have spent 20 years building. Witnesses say the sparks continued for several hundred metres as the train travelled north, right up through Wollonga National Park, more than 15 kilometres away. It's been very big it's, uh, and it's still a significant concern. Obviously residents are very concerned about their ability to get back into properties and uh, welfare of animals that they may have left behind. Brookfield Consider, says James, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. And then the message version of the same passage. It only takes a spark, remember to, remember to set up a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. Very strong words. <clears throat> James tells us in that passage, and it's a familiar passage, that actually the tongue is a wonderful yet devastating instrument. We can do so much damage, replying in anger, sniping in anger, gossiping to others. With the same tongue, says James, we can uphold and affirm people, or we can pull people down and cut them to shreds. We can cause deep anger and upset. Just like a forest fire with one spark. So to years of disagreement can start off with one bad conversation. <clears throat> words are incredibly important. The power of words to build up or turn down, to build up or tear down, to inflame or calm, to criticize or apologize. So let's start to wrap up. First of all, disagreement is not a sin. Disagreement in church is not a sin. Disagreement is healthy as long as we do it well, as long as we disagree well. It's an opportunity to learn. Can you help me understand that decision? Can you, help, can you explain it to me? In fact, many churches view disagreement with embarrassment because we feel it's, it somehow affects our unity. But I would say churches where people are not able to express their honest opinion, those are unhealthy churches. If we can't disagree, those are unhealthy places. We have to be able to disagree, but we have to do it well, articulate it gently. Unity is not about agreeing on everything. That's simply not true. It's about agreeing on our core beliefs and then agreeing on our mission and saying, well, even if we don't agree on this situation, we will still be in unity. We will still work together. Honest opinions, gently articulated. So let's summarize then. Conflicts in churches are common. I've given the reasons why. I've given um, the, well, the, the, the main topics, the main topics of conflict. They occur, actually, disagreements in churches occur because people care deeply 
about things. People care deeply. And their identity is often wrapped up in the discussion. We need to approach people gently and openly, go to them with a soft heart. And we too must not be too precious if it's our area, our ministry, what we do that's being questioned. We mustn't be quick to take offense. We need a thick skin. Um, here's a, a, com- a, a comment from uh, Colin Moles, executive director of Bridge Builder Ministries, who do mediation in churches that are falling apart. And he said, disagreement and some level of conflict happens in a normal, healthy course of relationships. If God wanted us all to agree, he wouldn't have created men and women. And there you go. But there are two sides to every argument. Well, I've already given you both. (laughs) Colin also said, uh, I've got another quote here from him. If nothing else, he says, if you find yourself in conflict with someone in church, be curious. Go and have the conversation. Now, I interviewed Colin and one or two other authors. And the materials I produced are in the notes underneath this YouTube video, if you want to look at those. But for now... Let's just wrap up. Jesus said, the commandment, if we've fallen out with somebody in church, it's not advice or a suggestion. It's a command from Jesus. If, you, if your brother or sister, if you feel they've sinned against you, go to them. Take the initiative. Don't seethe about it. Don't go to other people. Don't go to them in a rage. Go to your brother and sister with heart searching, with prayer, with a little humility. Be curious. Go to them. And God promises to be with us in a special way when we do that. So if we, I'm going to end on this. If you remember nothing else from this message, just this simple phrase. This is what we need in our churches today. Soft hearts and thick skins. Soft hearts, genuinely caring, sensitive to the other person, to what they're doing, to the fact that their identity may be involved in this situation, in this, in this room, whatever it is. And thick skins being hard to offend, not taking things, um, so, so not taking things personally, not taking immediately thinking, well, you're attacking something that I'm doing. Soft hearts and thick skins. This is this is the transformation that Jesus uh, calls us to. This is the transformation that He brings in our hearts. This is the daisy breaking through the concrete, the splash of colour. The gospel, the good news, looking different, a splash of color in a a world of concrete arguments and self-righteousness and self-defense and gossip. Let's pray. And uh, Heavenly Father, you call us, Lord, to have these soft hearts and thick skins. You call us, Lord, to take the initiative when we feel at odds with anybody else in our fellowships. So Lord, we pray for that soft heart, Lord. We pray for, Lord, that you would soften our hearts where they've been hard up to now. We pray, Lord, for thick skins, Lord. Help us not to be overly sensitive. Help us, Lord, not to take offense so easily. Perhaps there are people... I'm going to just allow a bit of silence. Perhaps there are people in our fellowship or outside our fellowship who you need to forgive because you feel offended by them. Perhaps there are people in our fellowship who you need to go to and ask for forgiveness for some situation that's been going on in the past.
Let's just bring those to God right now. Lord, you challenge us to become like you and to not be like the world around us, um, self-righteous, self-defense, gossiping, angry. So Lord, we give our hearts to you again this morning and we ask you, we ask Lord that you would reveal to us, Father, if there are people who we need to find resolution with. Who we, who, people with whom we've been in conflict with, perhaps people we haven't spoken with. We just make sure we don't, we're not next to them, we're not sitting next to them, we, don't, we just make sure we don't meet them. We confess, Lord, that we haven't had soft hearts and thick skins, and we pray, Lord, that you would change us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us our hearts of flesh, Lord. Take away our hearts of stone. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.